Union, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am Paul Ken, one of your hosts, and with me is my co-host and bat cousin, Sean M. Myers. What's going on, Sean? I am ready for some cinnamon apple pie and talking about some great stories. Sounds like a plan. So, Sean, do you want to tell folks at home about the show? Absolutely. Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978 and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even Ragman and the Demon. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman family reunion. So let's talk about issue number three. Issue number three was has a cover date of January, February 1976, and it was on sale on October 21st, 1975, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. 64 pages for two shiny quarters. There are four stories in here. Unfortunately, we now get a new story and three reprints. The cover artist is Ernie Chan. Sean, why don't you tell me about the cover? A dinosaur is eating Batgirl. That's all you need to know about the cover. A dinosaur is eating Batgirl. Robin is rushing to her aid with the psycho. And you might be fooled and you think that he's going to hit her. But no, no, it's just the way it's angled. Yeah, this is a great cover. The dinosaur is fantastic. The bloodshot eyes, the teeth dripping with saliva and Batgirl straining to keep the mouth open. And you can see the strain in her face. She's like, like that. And Robin zooming in on his bike to try to help save her. And I know you don't like these box covers, but check out that dinosaur. He's breaking outside the box. So in, in two instances, in a way, I kind of like that this is boxed only because you do have the dinosaur breaking out of the box, which I think is fantastic. Yep. And I will say, Along the side, the left-hand side, like the quote-unquote mug shots are, at, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. These were drawn for the cover, which really makes them stand out. It just adds another level to it. And I love that aspect of it. Yeah, the other ones before were all cut and paste from other places. I'm pretty sure you're right that these were drawn new for the cover by Ernie Chan. Batwoman is lovely. The Kite Man's and then Batman of the Future with a space helmet on top of the Batman. I love it. Even though that Batman is a little not true to the story, there are often comic book covers that aren't true to the story. <laughs> the one maybe complaint, the Batgirl and Robin heads at the top. I'm, I'm not a fan of those but that's not that big of a deal well we don't get the fetching image of batgirl and robin at the top which is unfortunate darn it the batman family logo itself i don't like that it's all in black i like when especially like when family is a different color with like that little like box that comes down from the logo well you know it's interesting you're right i'm just looking at my other issues in the first two issues it was a different color in both of them and it is in subsequent issues and uh, i agree with you i I think when that's a different color i do think it looks a a little better so a good catch there looks look how robin's driving in he's ducking his head down to so he can fit inside the mouth so he can help batgirl hold it open it's just a terrific cover and definitely eye-catching on the stands 
One thing I want to add, already you're known for your research behind the stories. And I did research on this cover. Oh, cool. It turns out that Michael Crichton was a huge fan of Batman Family Number 3. And this inspired (laughs) him to write the novel Jurassic Park. And that is all 100% true. That's awesome because I had some comments about story number one, which we'll get to in a minute, about how Jurassic Park like it is. By the way, for new listeners, I'm totally lying. (laughs) We'll post this cover image as well as other images from the additional stories in the Family Portrait Gallery. Sean, what is that website? The website is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now let's dive into the first story. So the first story, as indicated on the cover, is called Isle of a Thousand Thrills, starring, of course, Batgirl and Robin. 18-page story, again, written by Elliot S. Magan. And instead of Mike Grell, we don't have much of a downgrade because this issue... We get art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Inked by Vince Coletta. This story is reprinted both in Batgirl, the Bronze Age Omnibus, Volume 1, and Robin, the Bronze Age Omnibus. So you can find it in either of those places, as well as the issue is found in its entirety on the DC Universe. Our story starts as a very important congressional delegation arrives at the sleepy coastal village of Provincetown for a very important meeting on offshore drilling or some such activity that is not actually very important, nor is it mentioned again. The important thing is that among this auspicious group, of course, is our favorite Congresswoman from Gotham, Babs Gordon. At the same time, coincidentally, Dick Grayson and a few of his friends from Hudson University have descended upon the resort town as well. They are there for the weekend because they are curious about an impending announcement from Major Montana, who is a, quote, filmmaker, cartoon director, novelist, magician, and wealthy eccentric, unquote. He's kind of a cross between Walt Disney, Colonel Sanders, and John Hammond from Jurassic Park. He promises a fabulous gift for the young and the young at heart. Speaking of Jurassic Park, as Babs and the lawmakers are grabbing lunch, they are startled to see a dinosaur, specifically a plesiosaur, menace the tourists out on the boardwalk. To the consternation of her colleagues, Babs dashes off to change into Batgirl, but she is beaten to the scene by the Team Wonder, vrooming his Robin cycle around the dinosaur, trying to trick it back into the water. As Dick's friend, Frank, snaps pictures of the beast, Batgirl shows up and the dynamite duo corral him back into the water. Batgirl and Robin commandeer a boat to pursue him, but the tourists all hop in their boats too and follow them out to an island that just wasn't there before. After they disembark, a T-Rex happens to wander by, crashing their boats. But this just gives the superhero pair a chance to practice their aerial maneuvers through the trees. Plus, it gives Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, name, a chance to show off his chops. They scare Rex away, but are immediately set upon by a bunch of guys in red robes. The Spanish Inquisition? Whatever. More gymnastics and fisticuffs ensue, and the dynamite duo dispatch the thugs pretty easily. Dick's photographer friend, Frank, shows up and shows everybody his pictures, which indicate no destroyed boardwalk or ships or plesiosaur. Turns out the whole thing is an illusion, all caused by Major Montana. He was tired of creating movies, so he decided to create an island where people could come and be thrilled by having their imaginations come to life. The island is one giant thrill ride. Hmm, sounds like Michael Crichton owes this guy, as you said. (laughs) After they return to shore, Robin is trying to be cool. He's leaning on his cycle, and he bids Batgirl goodbye by calling her Congresswoman. At first, Babs is surprised, 
but quickly regains her composure as she once again puts Robin in his place by saying, you can call me Babs if I can call you Dick. Sean, what do you think about the Isle of a Thousand Thrills? This really is everything that a comic book story should be. Like, <laughs> I just think this is fantastic. <laughs> so maybe it doesn't have a villain, I guess. So that's kind of like, I mean, it has villainous figures. I mean, it doesn't have, you know, like a Joker or two face. But oh yeah. my gosh, like it's just so much fun and exciting and you don't know what's going on. It is very exciting. You definitely don't know what's going on. I still, I've read it like 50 times. I still don't know what's going on. But it's, <laughs> <laughs> and the art, I mean, the art's fantastic. It goes without saying, and we'll get to certain parts of it. In the first issue, we talked about how like dynamic the art is and how you have such a sense of motion. And obviously it's still the same. I mean, his art is just so wonderful and it has weight and i mean they are dynamic (laughs) it's just a joy to look at in motion i will say i find it funny and i was going to mention this a little later but i'll mention it now there are a lot of butt shots in this story not just a batgirl there's plenty of robin too oh Oh, I noticed those. Believe you me, I noticed those. He likes to draw the cape swinging around to the side so that we get a clear view of their butts. I just think that's pretty funny. It is funny because the cape swinging shows movement, Mm -hmm. but that's not all it shows all. (laughs) And even on the first page, we get both of their butts. I think it's funny that Dick and his friend are walking down the street and he's like, oh, I hear a Barbara Gordon congresswoman's coming. And didn't you work for her? And uh, he's like, oh, I got to avoid her. You know, in Washington, it's feasible that both Robin and Dick Grayson could be here. But this is a little town. I I don't want to give away my secret identity. So we get a hint of what's to come. And the caption points out, yeah, you didn't realize it either that Batgirl shows up. (laughs) The same thing is true. That is one thing. So we're going to skip ahead a little bit. I love the fact that so early into the run of Batman family, because this is only their second team up together. I love that they've dispatched with the hiding the secret identity. The writers know they're going to be teaming up a lot. Let's just get it out of the way right away by having them know each other's identity. Agree. Some of the facial expressions of the various people, Dick's girlfriend, Lori, on page four, and the congressman on page four, when he sees the dinosaur, he's like, (gasps) And actually, if you flip back to number three, where Major Montana is having like his dinner party, and one of the guests there drops the spoon, and then you turn the page, and Dick is picking up a spoon that's someone that he's eating. That's Hitchcock. Right there, that is very, very much like a movie scene. And at the bottom of page four, when you have Congressman Stover and you see him from kind of like the waist up and you see his hand and then the next panel is his face, like that's a camera zoom in. It's like when you're in the cavern in The Lion King and the camera zooms in on Simba's face. It is movie making in a comic book. And And at that time, I think that was pretty distinct. We often go on and on about Garcia Lopez's beautiful people, his his style, his action, but his storytelling and the way that the camera moves around is really very, very impressive. Yeah. What you were saying with his art, on page three, if you look at the city street when they're walking by, these people are dressed as they would have been dressed in real life. These people aren't wearing suits from the 40s with hats. You know, (laughs) the women aren't wearing pillbox hats or that kind of thing. He probably would have been still pretty young, pretty new in his career. Like This is early in his career, yep. He knew how people at that time dressed. The other thing too, I love that they're all dressed 
differently. They don't have a similar style. It, it is summer here. They're wearing shorts. Just the clothing is fantastic in this. Yeah. I get a kick out of Dick's friend wearing his uh, floppy hat everywhere. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Again, there's no action really on that page four that we keep talking about. There's the spoon. There's the girlfriend turning around and looking. The, mm-hmm. And then we get the exact opposite. What was she looking at? And you see Dick leaving because he doesn't want to see Babs. The plesiosaur. First of all, I don't know how this illusion thing works. I mean, I, I think you just got to go with it because it makes absolutely no sense. Let's put that on the table. We'll get rid of uh, the quote unquote dumb point first. Once they're on the island, I would have rather them be like robots or whatever. Or cloned dinosaurs. Ooh, that's <laughs> a good idea, I, wouldn't it? That, that would be a very good I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if you could make money off of that. Hmm. <laughs> But now, yeah, especially like down the city street, like how, how are all of these, like where are the projectors or the, and I understand it's a comic and I more than other people are, am willing to buy into comic book logic, but that might be, I, I don't want to say it's, it's a, it's a step too far because I am in it. But it really does defy that. But it just it gives us a chance, right, to have the action, to have the interaction of the people and Batgirl and Robin. They go out to this island. I, the, the whole action sequence on pages six and seven, which is fabulous, right? Robin zooming mm-hmm. a cycle in. Batgirl's lassoing the tail. Robin's like, uh-oh, she's going to get yanked off the roof. So he throws his batarang and cuts the rope so that she can then jump down on the back of his cycle. Like he jumped on the back of her cycle on issue number one. And none of it makes any sense if it's an illusion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, how is, how, yeah. How is she lassoing its tail if it's not there in an illusion? You got to just let it go because it, yeah. it makes absolutely no sense. Speaking of another summer blockbuster, I love at the bottom of page eight, all of the people running out towards the boats. I think it has to be lifted from Jaws. When everyone's going out in their boats to capture the shark, and this would have been out, I guess, about a year after oh. Jaws. Like, I have to think that that panel was inspired by that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so let's step into the story for a minute, right? This dinosaur has just been wreaking havoc all over the boardwalk. And background Robin jump in this boat, go after him. And all the tourists are like, oh, what a great idea. Let's chase after them, <laughs> after this dinosaur that just wreaked all this havoc. Gives them a chance to experience the island. And they all come on and they're taking pictures and they've got their hats and their Hawaiian shirts and stuff. It's pretty funny. It is a good thing that they do that because then that does kind of lead to the island yeah it's the isle of a thousand thrills so it's actually a the story has a total of a thousand and eighteen thrills because they had they had 18 thrills on the mainland and now the isle is going to give them a thousand thrills i guess that's the case great image of batgirl's face on page nine as she turns around says besides we've got company and she's like because there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex coming and he's heading through yeah. the boats and he crashes all the boats so they think they're stranded. I love the sequence where they're swinging through the trees and they get the stick. She attaches her bat rope to the back of her belt and the other end to the trees. So she's flying through. Robin jumps up. She grabs his feet and swings him towards the T-Rex so he can jam the giant stick into his mouth. And then that's how we get the dinosaur with a stick in his mouth and they sort of scare away the Tyrannosaurus Rex. That is just a beautiful sequence. I love any time Dick does acrobatics. I, I love it when anyone does acrobatics in comics, but especially for Dick, it obviously makes sense. It's funny because I was going to say as a kid, I loved that, which is true. But as an adult, I love it. Mm-hmm. 
And two, when you have a great artist, you know, like in the first issue with Mike Brown and this issue, when you can see the progression of an action on the page, I love that. Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. This is a, a great view. So she, so the dinosaur runs away. Then we get out of the blue, the Spanish Inquisition. Which, <laughs> first I thought, hey, we've got people are all asking, what do we do now, Batgirl Robin? What can we do? And she's like, hey, I didn't expect some Spanish Inquisition, which is really kind of <laughs> shoehorning it in there, I guess. I mean, I don't know if that was a saying in 1975, but I thought that was weird because then the Spanish Inquisition shows up. Does it bring to life illusions of your memory? Again, you've really got to let your your logic go out of the window for that. It just gives a bunch of guys for them to beat up. That's an interesting point because that didn't even occur to me. She brings up the Spanish Inquisition and then they're there. Yeah. So I didn't even realize that. Yeah. So I guess it's- But that wasn't the case with the dinosaurs. Right. Right. Nor is it the case of the Spanish Inquisition group from the future with the jetpacks, right? Nobody says, yeah. boy, I'm sure glad they didn't have jetpacks and we're from the future. <laughs> so nobody says that. How do these illusions manifest, right? So again, you, you just got to take it for what it's worth. One thing I love, and again, oh my gosh, like we were talking about the art in this, deservedly so. But when Robin is fighting the Spanish Inquisition, like I love that he has almost the way the flash is drawn with the after images on page 14, you have Robin's face facing one way and then his face facing the other way, his elbow up, like you can see it. And then in the next panel, you just see just a little bit of a face facing one of them. And then he turns around to the other one. Like, it's just so great. Yeah, definitely. You can tell it's a fast action. Yeah. And the panel I love is the one at the bottom, the middle of the bottom of the page. And they've finished piling up the goons and Batgirl and Robin are smiling and they're like, <laughs> and they're crunching their knuckles and they're saying, that was kind of fun. What do we got next? Which kind of leads into the thought of the thrill. Yep. When Major Montana does show up and says, hey, you're used to it. For regular people, this could be a fun thing. Which that nugget of an idea makes sense, right? And what the whole purpose of thrill rides. Again, the next page is just the random transferring or the transmogrifying, I don't know what you'd call it, of the Spanish Inquisition to the future thought police. Yeah. They don't explore that idea at all because they're less than a page of story time. <laughs> I don't know whether they needed extra space in the story or what, because that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. At this point, they were only up to 666 thrills so they needed to add it to get to a thousand and then out of nowhere dick's friend shows up with his pictures that show that there's no dinosaur there's no spanish because there's no wreckage back on the boardwalk then poof all the illusions disappear because i guess now that you know they're not real they disappear or maybe major montana who then happens to show up maybe he just turned them off i don't know earlier you were saying like who you thought major montana was an amalgam of and and i Agreed with everything you said, although I also would have thrown in Orson Welles because mm. I even was thinking that before, but especially when you see like the castle, is that supposed to be like Sam Simeon for uh, Susan Kane and that kind of thing? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I threw in Colonel Sanders just because I thought he looked like him a little bit, but really he's just like the guy from Jurassic Park, John Hammond. I mean, isn't it scary how much it's like it? I mean, we've joking about that, but oh, yeah, page 17. Yeah. And he's like, this island of a thousand thrills is yours, good people. And this is where he says it's for the young and the young at heart forever. And and I like at the bottom of that page and the Robin's holding his chin going, hmm, because <laughs> he's making the point that you're used to this, but for everybody else, they had the time of their lives following you and getting chased by a dinosaur. Now, my question is, this is a gift from old Major Montana. So going forward, do we not have to pay park prices <laughs> to 
to enter into this? Yeah, really. If only Walt Disney had had that idea. <laughs> I was just going to say, both of us are Walt Disney World fans, and I think we would get on board with going to the Isle of a Thousand Thrills. But then a giant whale brings them back <laughs> to the mainland. <laughs> I don't know whether Jose added that in as just a thing to be fun, or if that's something Elliot Magan came up with, but it's a, it's bizarre. It is scripted as the celebrated Batgirl and Robin usher an ecstatic crowd aboard a great blue whale submarine. <laughs> Once again, we get a great ending. Yeah. Dick's like, hey, I figured this out. She's Babs. You know, how could I have not seen this before? And I'm going to just have one over on her. And man, what a beautiful image of her turning her face saying, how, what do you mean, Congresswoman? And then she's like, whatever. You can call me Babs if I can call you Dick. And she just swings off and he's like, uh... <laughs> I just love it. I think her turning her head like I think that's just a reflex. I'm Batgirl. If someone says Congresswoman, I should act surprised. Like it's just it's just like a reflex. Like what? Oh, I don't, oh, it's you, Robin. I know you. And the thing I love too is they both know they are detectives. They both know they are smart. They don't even get into well. How did you know? Well, I knew, and you said, and you left. I love that. I agree with you 100. It's about just their personal interaction, their growth as a team, and as friends. A terrific way to end the issue because that was a big deal. I mean, secret identities were a big deal back then. I'm going to talk when we get to the fourth story a little bit about secret identities. It makes total sense now. Whenever every bat person knows every other bat person's secret identity, but back then they didn't. It was cool. I remember being surprised by that and saying, "Wow, what's going to happen next?" And the thing I loved, especially back then, it was such a sense of trust to have someone know your secret identity which just ups their trust level, ups their team building. Right. The second story, which we'll get to in a little bit, it's all about secret identities and yeah. Batman and Robin not trusting Batwoman. I don't know if they picked it for that reason, but it's a it's a big change from the past, which I really do like. Yeah. So overall, you got to love the story. You can't take it too seriously or think too hard about the logic or the technology, <laughs> but it's got beautiful art, great action, development in the characters' arcs, all that kind of stuff. It really is a, a great example of what this this it can be i think on a scale from one to ten i am giving this a thousand, a thousand? <laughs> okay so right now we are going to take a trip to gabriel's horn the hip hopping and hangout for the teen titans in the 1970s we're going to talk about the most 1970s moment in the batgirl robin story and i was so afraid cousin paul was gonna spill it for everybody because in addition to all of the outfits and the costumes that the people were wearing, the most blatant, flagrant 1970s thing is the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> and you're thinking, well, how can that be from the 1970s? The whole thing where Batgirl says, I didn't expect some kind of Spanish Inquisition. And they said, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition because our chief weapon is surprise. That whole thing is Monty Python. I didn't Monty make that Python, connection. That's great. Which was on PBS in the 70s, as every 12-year-old boy could tell you because they could see boobies on PBS. <laughs> Monty Python had a recurring skit where someone would be questioned and questioned and questioned. And they would say, well, I wasn't expecting the Spanish Inquisition, which was just a regular phrase. And then the Spanish Inquisition would Kool-Aid man their way into a room 
and say, well, I wasn't expecting this Spanish Inquisition because our chief weapon is surprise. That is the most 70s moment of this issue. So I have one that's different, actually. So I'm curious to see what you thought. At first, I was like, well, maybe it's Babs's outfit or maybe even Major Montana's ascot (laughs) or Frank using an actual dark room to develop the pictures all the while with his beach hat on, which I love. But if you think about the 1970s, there were two huge pop culture influences, disaster movies and theme parks. Uh, Oh, yeah. Walt Disney World in Florida just opened in 1972, only three years before this story saw print. There were theme parks of all kinds popping up, trying to take advantage of that. And then disaster movies were all the rage, Towering Inferno, The Poseidon Adventure, all that kind of stuff. The theme of those types of things, the thrill rides, the disasters happening, even though I guess they didn't really happen, sort of fit in with this story. So that was my uh, trip to Gabriel's Horn for this issue, Sean. Yes, absolutely. When you said that, I could hear the pounding of the disco beat at Gabriel's (laughs) Horn. So yes, yes, you are completely right. Okay, our second story is The Challenge of Batwoman. And it stars Batman, Robin, and Batwoman. And this is her second appearance. It's 10 pages. The writer is Bill Finger. The penciler is Sheldon Moldorf. Inker is Charles Paris. And this appeared in Batman number 105 from 1957. The excellent splash page opens our story with the image of an air-quoted Batman being taught to wirewalk high above the floor in the Bat Cavern by Batwoman. But Robin clues us in on the twist of the story by letting us know that it's not Batman, but a criminal. Our story starts with Batwoman, who I straight up love, 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 so there'll be no jokes about her in this synopsis as her civilian self, Kathy Kane, lamenting that her life is boring now because she's not out busting crime as the Batwoman anymore. But good news, no, great news is that she has an excuse slash reason to don the beautiful costume again because there is a masquerade ball this very evening. Meanwhile... Batman and Robin are preparing to go out to stop a gang that specializes in art heists. You know, just like Hudson Hawk. But for once in the history of the DCU, the crime boss is intelligent and doesn't show his face to his henchmen. Kathy is riding her motorcycle, not taking a pumpkin carriage on the way to the ball. At the same moment that Batman takes a header into a swamp, oh, I'm I'm sorry, I mean twists his ankle, the crime boss falls off the top of a train due to his not figuring out that the coal gray smoke coming from the stack might not be great for his vision. So maybe he's not such an intelligent crime boss. In the span of seven panels on page four, Batwoman, number one, knows that the injured man with the soot-covered face is Kurt Briggs, headmaster of a physical culture school. Number two, surmises that he is probably Batman because of the way that Robin was attending to him with tender, loving care. Number three, diagnoses Kurt with amnesia, number four, enacts a plan to protect Batman from criminals, finding out he's in less than tip-top shape, number five, takes him to her bat cavern, two, number six, retrain him the fine art of crime fighting. (sighs) You go, girl. I mean, you win, woman. Batwoman does what Batgirl and Robin should have done last issue and goes out on patrol with him while injured. But unfortunately, since Batman and Robin aren't secure enough in their crime-fighting hood, they don't find it necessary to include Batwoman in on the information that Kurt is the criminal boss of the art heist gang. 
Robin reports back to Batman, who then figures out that Kurt has regained his memory, placing Batwoman in serious danger. At the Chinatown Museum, Kurt smacks Robin in the jaw and then tries to take Batwoman hostage. But the appearance of Batwoman standing mightily atop a statue gives her the advantage that she needs to slap some charm bracelet handcuffs onto an unsuspecting gang member. Robin and Batman round up the rest of the criminals, and then Batman admits that they couldn't have captured the Briggs gang without her help. Batwoman seems to decide to go back into retirement at the end of the story, but thankfully, she makes 46 more appearances in the 60s before she's revived seven issues from now. What did you think, Paul? Well, this story checks several boxes. Batman and Robin are kind of jerks to Batwoman. Okay, <laughs> par for the course, check. Amnesia. Anytime someone hits their head, they get amnesia. Even, even when I was a kid, I rolled my eyes at that sort of thing. But check. Sheldon Maldorf art. Really good this time around. Not quite as exciting as last issue's story, I thought, but solid storytelling. Check. Coincidences, left and right. Check. Giant statues from the 1950s. Check. So <laughs> overall, it's got all those check marks. How can it not be as successful? I think it's funny that how dare that woman sully herself by going out and fighting crime and Bruce and Dick are like forcing her into retirement. In her first story, they find out her name and, and all that. But I just think it's hysterical that she has a bat cavern, which is a much more sophisticated name. She happens to be in another house that has a cave underneath. There must be a lot of them in Gotham City, I guess. <laughs> you know, on page one, I wish they hadn't given it away with Robin's thought bubble. If it, he had just been saying, uh, uh, what, what? Who's that guy? Or something like that. And he was drawn maybe not to look so much like Bruce. It kind of gives away a lot of the story. And you could have had a little more of a, of a mystery going on there if, if his thought bubble had been a little different. But they like to do that a lot. And in fact, even in the next story, they give away the ending too. So what are you going to do? I love Batwoman. The first time I ever read a Batwoman story was later on in the series. Because I actually didn't have this issue when it came out. But I did get when she came back. And especially reading the old issues of Batwoman, which I have now. I love it because it's a Bat character that isn't doing this out of tragedy. Mm -hmm. She's doing it as an adventure. Like she, she wants to have a thousand thrills. So she's going to go out adventuring <laughs> with Batman. Yeah, she's called a spirited young lady who's gotten in his hair before. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I understand, like, the the mores of the time where, like, you know, sure. men, men were the adventurers and, you know, women had to be off to the side, which is just ridiculous. Because Wonder Woman was a certainly a viable character during this time. I don't know that they had it planned, but at the end of the story, she says she's going in retirement. And I had to look it up. Thankfully, she makes 46 more appearances, so I'm glad she doesn't stay there. Yeah, she was too popular. I think her costume is fantastic. I Oh, her costume's great. Love the the huge like eye pieces and the the way her belt is, I'm not going to describe it very well. Goes in towards the triangle, the the diamond and it's yellow and red. Like I I just love Batwoman as a character. I think she's fantastic. They could have very easily given her a costume that looked like Batman's, but they went totally different, which I, I agree with you. I think her costume is pretty uh, terrific. The other thing before we dive story deep by story deep, she is competent. She is not bumbling. She's not fumbling. And even though she does like Batman, it's not like she's man crazy. She doesn't jump out of an open window so that her hero saves her the way early Lois Lane would. Right. Yeah, and she's on her motorcycle. If they would have clued her in and maybe not reveal their identities to her, but include her in 
with their crime fighting. This whole story wouldn't have had to have happened. You make the point that she doesn't fight crime out of tragedy, but for the thrills and she's most fun she has of fighting crime is getting to wear the costume. <laughs> so she's like, oh, I get to wear I get to wear it at, to a costume ball tonight. So I'm all excited about that. And then the coincidences start. The bad guy who happens to have a cowl in a similar shape to Batman's. Yeah. The fact that Batgirl happens to be driving right by after the he slips and falls. The coincidence of Batman. Once again, Batman doesn't look good in this story. He twists his ankle running. <laughs> Just like the one we had last month about falling in the uh, swamp. Very, very, very silly. But you're right. Up until this point, the guy's pretty smart. He throws his mask away because he's afraid if he got caught. This way, nobody knows what he looks like. He could just be some guy in a suit out in the woods. Whatever. <laughs> and two, I love that Batwoman takes control of the situation. Assuming that this is Batman, she is acting so intelligently. We have to protect him. We have to save him. We're going to retrain him into the ways of being Batman. She is fantastic. Why wouldn't you want her on your side? And Robin is, quote, smart enough to play along. He figures out as well, he's got amnesia. He, he thinks, oh, if Kathy sees Bruce later with an injury, she'll connect the dots. We can't have that happening. So I'll play along. And, and so then that's how the whole charade gets started, I guess. Yeah. And two, the fact that she has the Bat Cavern. <laughs> I love She's that. dedicated. She is dedicated. That's where they're going to train him. Doesn't have quite as much high tech as the Bat yeah. Cave. She's got a net with the rope they string up for him to do a high wire act. It's reasonably effective that this guy's memory starts to sort of come back as he sees the newspaper articles about the crime opportunities. So that was, uh, can sort of buy that if you're buying it. I think story. that was really well done. A, a good way to, to bring him back criminally. Love the Trojan horse bit. They wheeled this giant horse into the museum and then a bunch of crooks jump out. That is classic. I always used to like how Batwoman had all these gadgets in her bat purse that were crime fighting gadgets, but woman's thing. So she uses her, what's it called? The powder puff. Powder puff smoke <laughs> and blows it on the crook. He's like, <laughs> I just love that stuff. Nowadays, she would have her stiletto heel. Like she would pull it out, <laughs> stab someone in the chest. Throw it yeah. at him, stab him, yeah. Then the guy figures it out. Robin doesn't realize it. By the way, I don't know what a physical culture school is. I tried to Google it last oh, night. Uh, wow, yeah, please, please tell me all the things you got about your physical culture school. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but they're all like, oh yeah, he's the headmaster of a physical culture school. There was a the physical fitness craze was starting up in the 50s and people were like lifting weight, like regular people, not strong men from the circus, but regular people had started lifting weights. I couldn't find anything about particular schools other than just sort of the general fitness craze. Not all of it was valid. They used to have those things that women had that would juggle them and <laughs> shake their hips. That kind of stuff was all invented about then. Other than that, I don't know what a physical culture school is. I would think it's leaning heavily from the Jack LaLanne and almost how girls or women would have charm school or manner school or ballet school. It's probably supposed to be a masculine form of that for the times. So the guy's squeezing the little ball and he only is doing that because he remembers that he's the bad guy. And that couldn't have just been a uh, reflex action of him. So Batman figures out. That's his tell. <laughs> yeah. Then we get the giant statues, which are funny. The bad guys had dressed up like mannequins. <laughs> I think it's funny. And they hop off of the statue. They've been standing there all day for eight hours. Perfect. Perfect stock still. And so then Batman makes an appearance at the top and Robin's like, oh, how can he be standing on his injured ankle? And then they, of course, take care of the bad guys. It's a pretty good action sequence there, Robin, diving into the guys with swords. And Obviously, any Batman story that has big items is a Batman story. Like, that's just so difficult. The last thing I'll say about this story, the contraption that Batman's got his leg taped up in, ouch. <laughs> 
that does not look comfortable. With all the straps and stuff pulling it behind his... His right heel is digging into his buttock. <laughs> and he's putting his weight on the fake leg. Just ouch all yeah, around. Yeah. Overall, fun story, typical for the late 1950s. It's a good, another illustration of someone from the Bat family. We get Batwoman's second appearance, which is cool. Fits in the theme of the issue. Yeah, I I love it. This is Batman family. We're seeing members of the Batman family that maybe we've never seen before. And I think this is a great example of Batwoman. So let's move on to our second break segment, Bat Branding. And we're going to talk about various ad letters, pages, and text pages that we find throughout the issues. So, Sean, you want to start us off? Absolutely. The first double page ad that I'm going to talk about is the beautiful combination of old treasuries, which aren't treasuries, but limited collector's editions, and (laughs) the new. And that is following story page 17. So on the left, you have all the old treasuries, Super Friends, Dick Tracy, the famous first editions, the beautiful Batman cover with the villains and the Bat Signal spotlights. So you could have your pick there. But then on the other page, a sideways ad, you have the two newest additions to the limited collector's edition. You have Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, and uh, I'm clutching my chest because I am so in love with Christmas with the superheroes. Now, this was the <laughs> second treasury with Christmas with the superheroes. And the interesting thing about this is in this ad, you will see Captain Marvel Jr. sitting on the back of the sleigh, but his story actually isn't in that treasury. And he is removed from the cover because I believe from the time the ad was solicited to the time it came out, they eliminated some page count. I did not know that. Thank you for that story. Unfortunately, he does not make the cut But it is a great story. And the other thing I want to say, slight bragging, maybe I am the happy owner of every DC Christmas collection that they have ever published. Now, I don't have every individual Christmas story, but anytime DC did a collection of Christmas stories, I got them because I love them. Absolutely love DC Christmas stories. I like how they point out that this one has a a super collection of unusual Christmas stories, plus greeting cards, puzzles, and even a sing-along. I (laughs) loved that sing-along because they're like with so many Christmas carols, There are like 142 verses and a lot of times pop songs only do like two or three of them if we're lucky. But there are so many like variant verses to Christmas songs and I loved reading all of them. And because you know the tune in your head, you know how it's supposed to go. I love that. Immediately following the Batwoman story, there's an ad that many of our listeners may be familiar with. The Shrunken Heads Apple Sculpture is where you took an apple and let it rot and then decorate it. <laughs> so it was kind of a weird phase in the 1970s, kids. But the box comes with Vincent Price on it. I think I had one of these. I, I'm trying to remember, but I found that a very 70s thing that we should point out. But what I really want to talk about is on the following page, which is a great full page ad for the $6 million man action figure. At this time, this was by far my favorite TV show. Six Million Dollar Man was like a comic book on TV when we didn't have comic books on TV at that time. He's got a powerful bionic arm, a backpack radio that really works. He can pick up the live AM broadcast. An AM radio, kids, is fantastic. And I had this thing at the bottom, the bionic transport and repair station. <laughs> so it folds up to look like a rocket capsule. But then when you open it up, it's like an operating table that they can make him better, stronger, and faster with the lights that swing over. It's just really cool. He had a hole in his head so you could 
could actually peer through the back of his head and see with his bionic eye, a little magnifying glass. And I, I remember doing that when I was a kid. So overall, I love this. I remember watching the show and loving the show. And I, I remember this action figure and I never had it. I was always so jealous of the kids that did have it. And I don't want to spread misinformation and maybe I'm misremembering, but couldn't you roll back the skin on his arm? Yes. Because yes. They, and see the robotic. The ad- yeah, they don't advertise yeah. it in this one. Yeah, I always thought that was super cool about it. That was really cool. You could that's exactly what you could do. He had a robotic arm underneath and you could roll his skin back so you could see it. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I do have a horrible story about the six million dollar man. <laughs> so when I was a kid, there was an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man where Steve Austin meets Bigfoot. Oh, yeah. Very famous episode. The end of the episode is uh, my memory is Bigfoot carrying Steve Austin, maybe like over his shoulder, and it's down a hallway that's spinning. That freaked me out as a kid. <laughs> I was scared of Bigfoot for my entire child life. <laughs> And by that, I mean until I was about 53, and I'm (laughs) 53 now. There was also a movie, was it called In Search of Bigfoot? And I think his his hairy arm came through a window and was reaching around. (laughs) My bed was right at a window. All this confluence of Bigfoot freaked me out tremendously (laughs) so much. I think probably my mom told me that Bigfoot didn't exist. And I probably didn't believe it because I quote unquote saw it on TV. So I remember we had a map of the United States and she said, no, look, Sean, Bigfoot is in Washington. So it would take him years to walk across the country to come here. So you're safe. (laughs) That's great. That's a good way to get at it. If I would have had the Steve Austin $6 million man doll, I would have been protected. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Well, sorry, I never shipped it to you when we were kids. I loved all that Bigfoot stuff, all that stuff in the 70s, all these sort of mysteries, whether they were UFOs or Bigfoot or the Loch Ness yeah. Monster, things like that. I loved all that stuff. You know, we had those scholastic book fairs. They would always have books about this kind yeah. of stuff, and I would always pick those. So it's good stuff. You must have been a big fan of In Search Of. I did like that show quite a bit. Absolutely. All right, so let's move on. Following page four of the Kite Man story, which we'll talk about in a minute, there's a half page ad underneath a Slim Jim ad with lots of text, which I don't know why you have lots of text in a Slim Jim ad, but whatever. There's an ad for Superman's birthday at this Super DC convention that was held in 1976. I think this is where the notion, if you remember Bronze Age Superman's birthday was February 29th. Mm -hmm. This convention was held in 1976 on February 27, 28, and 29. And I'm pretty sure that's where that idea came from, whether Julie Schwartz or somebody like that came up with that idea. But they had a special edition of the Amazing World of DC Comics that was for this convention that I never had. had a lot of them when I was a kid, but I actually got that a couple of years ago on eBay, uh, and it's pretty neat. On the next page, there is also an ad for the Amazing World of DC Comics, which we've talked about. If you look at the end of the Kite Man story, there's a neat little ad for the House of Secrets. And again, I didn't buy these books when I was a kid, but what a great Bernie Wrightson cover there, the origin of the Patchwork Man in the House of Secrets. And he had obviously recently appeared in Swamp Things. That's pretty cool ad. That would have freaked me out as a kid. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's sort of all crooked on the cover and that's pretty neat. Now we are going to go to one of our favorite things about Batman family, and that is Batmail family. And that, of course, is the Batman family's letters pages. And I love letters pages. I'm going to speak for Cousin Paul. I know he does too. And before we begin talking about the letters column page, 
We want to invite Rod McLaughlin, Tom Murphy, Alan Tereniski, which I'm sure I'm saying that correctly, Emirate Freeze, T.E. Pouncey, Beth Love, Ken Meyer Jr., Tom Epps, Marsha Muhlenbach, Danny Rosecchio, Mark Schmeider, Scott R. Taylor, Pietro Martin, Mike Dargett, we are, and Mike White. We are inviting you to be on the show. We would love to have you at the reunion because your letters are published in this issue. So if you are listening to us now, reach out to us. We want you on the show. Unsigned, we don't want you on the show. And we'll get to that in a moment. Why not? Why not, Sean? Why don't you read that letter? Okay, so Unsigned, who I am comfortable saying is a Mr. Unsigned, (laughs) he writes in, the idea of teaming Backrow and Robin is cruddy. Are you going to knuckle under to women's lib? (laughs) They're even taking over the comic books now. (laughs) I'd rather see Batman Batgirl team ups because Batman would hold a position of male dominance. Robin with Batgirl makes men seem less dominant. Unsigned. And you don't want him at the party? I do not want him. (laughs) You don't want him at the party? I don't want him at the party. I don't want him in the county. I don't want him in the state or in the country. These letters are great. We're going to get to the best parts of the letters in a minute where we talk about the famous kiss from issue one, but there's a lot of good stuff. It's neat when you see the letters from the first issue. The first one is, what can you say about a comic mag that is years overdue and finally arrives? One word, fantastic. Elliot Magan is a great character, but if the devil can't even get himself a couple of young souls, what's he doing trying to possess the soul of the whole country? He's like struggling with the same issues we did when we reviewed the story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought that was good. The next letter is really great because it points out the secret identity dilemma. Yes. And luckily in this issue, they took care of it right away. And then they give credit to Alan Turianeski for coming up with the name Batmail family. Thankfully for us, they used the fetching image of Batgirl and Robin. So in nearly almost every issue, we do get that picture of those thighs and that that tilt of the hip. (laughs) All right, so let's go for it. Let's read some of the reactions to the kiss at the end of issue number one. You'll remember, for some reason, you didn't listen to our first episode. Pause here, go back and listen to the end of the first story. Robin is trying to tell Batgirl what to do, and she acts all demure and then plants a big kiss on him to shut him up and send him on his way. And so let's read some of the reactions to that scene. The first one, dear editor, I loved your Batman family number one, but don't you think a Batgirl was a little powerful on that kiss? No wonder Robin was stunned. The next one is, I liked the look on Robin's face after Batgirl laid that giant smackaroo on his kisser. Ah, but Tom Epps on the next one says, that kiss on page 17 really turned me off. Batgirl is an extremely mature woman, and Robin is still a boy, so please eliminate these will Batgirl and Robin have a romance situations. Boy, I bet that guy doesn't like modern comics. (laughs) Marsha, I agree with you. Loved the way Batgirl shut Robin up on page 17. I laughed for almost five minutes afterwards. Danny says, what would Bruce Wayne say if he saw his ward covered with bat lipstick? Mark, the love scene on page 17 was disgusting. Hmm. (laughs) But Scott seems to get it. He says, I love the ending. Can't get over that smirk on Robin's face as he swung away. But then Bob Rosakis puts them all straight. Sean, you want to read his response? To the many of you who seem to have misinterpreted that kiss on page 17, we offer the following information. Babs Gordon is at least 25, the minimum age requirement for election to Congress. Dick Grayson is still the teen wonder. 
There are no plans to develop a romance between the two. That kiss, as correctly viewed by most of our readers, was Bab's way of putting Robin down for trying to come on like a father figure and or male sugar. Way to go, Bob Rizaka, setting everybody straight. And then, of course, they reprint the panel, which is awesome that they do that. There's the completist among the group. Mike White says, your choice of reprints was okay, but please list their sources. And so then they go into a long paragraph about where all the stories from the first three issues came from. But for the time, that was important. Absolutely. Although they really could have just put a kind of like a box in like the upper left or right-hand corner of the story itself maybe saying where it was reprinted yep. from. Marvel did that in a lot of the like Marvel tales, but they didn't always do it. It annoyed me when they didn't do it. I'm with you, Mike, on this one. Tell us where these stories originally appeared. And then at the bottom of the page, we'll get coming back tractions, but we'll get into that next episode. Following the letters page, we have the wonderful hostess ad. Now, unfortunately, it's for hostess fruit pies, which I thought were disgusting. <laughs> I was promised deliciousness, and I was sold a lie by these beautiful ads. In this one, the captive Commissioner Gordon is taken hostage again. Now, this time, he doesn't have to send out a bat signal because there is a computerized car that's going to take Batman to the hideout. Luckily, he feeds the bad guys some hostess fruit pies, and then he punches them out. The last page of the book has a nice double ad for two comics. The All-Star Comics, number 58, The Return of the Justice Society, first appearance of Power Girl, and it's got Earth 2 Robin right in the middle of the cover, which is a great story. And I bought that one right away. This is the Conway's Corner stuff that we talked about in one of the previous episodes. And then Blackhawk is back with a big, big bubble saying that it's written by Jerry Conway and Steve Skates with art by George Evans. Present the return of the world's greatest fighting team. A lot of good stuff in the special features this issue, Sean. That was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Now we're going to move on to the villain of the issue. And that is The Kite Man. And the title of the story is Crimes of the Kite Man, starring Batman and Robin. And it's the first appearance of Kite Man. It's eight pages, written by Bill Finger, penciled by Dick Sprang, inked by Charles Paris. And it first appeared in Batman number 133. And I have to issue a splash page spoiler alert. The first page is basically the last page and will spoil the ending of the story. It's like an Inception Mobius loop. Batman and Robin are on their way to a visiting dignitary's luncheon reception when a box kite drops gas bombs onto a rooftop terrace. Oh, Gotham, how I would love to and hate to live in you. Down on the street, Kite Man prepares to blast off by unfurling a compressed air device to inflate wings and using jet rockets to propel him skyward, neither of which are really kites. But Kite Man doesn't believe in wasting time because within two panels, he steals a priceless ruby and then pows Batman on the jaw. Robin tries to pretend he's a cowboy and lassos Kite Man, but it's not love that's lifting Robin higher and higher, but rather Kite Man's devilish plan to do in the boy wonder. Luckily, Dick is a student in the form of Greg Luganis and Tom Daly and performs a 9.9 .9 dive into a rooftop water tower. In case you're wondering why it wasn't a perfect 10, it's because there's too much splash present. Kite Man becomes a crime sensation with daily headlines detailing his kite-assisted capers. Batman figures out that he's going to strike next at the kite water skiing competition held that day. But Batman couldn't be wronger because KM is actually building up his bankroll by taking on a job to bust Big Bill Collins out of jail. Now, 
I have no idea if Big Bill Collins is a member of the Millionaire Mobsters Club from last issue, but Cousin Paul will provide us with all of the background information regarding that. Luckily for our heroes, the kite contest is held on the same bay, waterway, inlet, sandbar? as where the prison is. So when they see Kite Man, who know, still doesn't have a regular Joe real name at this point in the story, is trying to make his getaway. Never missing a chance to stick to a theme, Batman grabs a huge Dick Sprangish prop box kite and flies up to the kite where KM and BBC are making their getaway. Never missing a chance to stick to a theme, Kite Man uses a kite to distract Batman while a henchman that I'll name Muggsy. No, Bugsy. Oh, wait, I'll stick to the theme and name him String, knocks out Batman by hitting him with his revolver. I, I mean, his kite revolver. String then proves he is the smartest criminal to ever appear in a Batman story and says, now we can throw him over the side, which would surely kill him. Kite Man, worried that String's master plan would work, and thus ensuring that String would be the villain of the issue for Batman Family number three, decides he needs to up his game just the same as a kite flies up in the air. See, I'm keeping with the theme here and keeps Batman captive. Kite Man needs the acceptance of others and comes up with a plan to call all of his crime buddies so they can come over and take pot shots at Bruce. Never missing a chance to stick to a theme Batman grabs a huge chunk of wallpaper that's peeling off of the wall of the room where he's being held captive and remembers how back in the reprint in Batman Family Number 1, Commissioner Gordon used his intelligence to fashion a bat signal to alert the dynamic duo. So Batman does the same to summon Robin to help him take down all of the assemblage of Kite Man's criminal cohorts. Kite Man knows that his time is numbered and makes his way to his glider kite to escape from capture. Never, ever missing a chance to dole out some poetic justice, Batman uses Kite Man's own dragon kite to swoop down and thud him down. What did you think, Paul? Terrific story, Sean. And thanks for the opening to give more history on Big Bill Collins <laughs> and the Millionaire's Mobsters Club. You know, I like that history. Bill next appeared in World's Finest number 137, where he served fresh farm-to-table appetizers and root beer floats prepared by Ma Kent to the Millionaire's Mobsters Club. And Superman enlisted the aid of Batman and Robin to find his mom, who left clues in a sequence of crop dusters flown by Hop Harrigan, who was her ex-boyfriend from World War II. <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. I, just oh, I love it. Love Love it, love it. I think the story was fun. It was a bit over the top with the gimmicks. I love at the beginning how Batman and Robin are just heading in for lunch. <laughs> They're just walking in. It's lunchtime and Robin's like, gosh, I'm hungry. I hope we don't have to wait long for lunch. I mean, Robin doesn't want to wait in line. Give me some lunch. I'm a grown I agree boy. with Robin. Don't make me wait. The next panel cracks me up. There's this giant kite. <laughs> The people are all eating their lunch out on a terrace. Looks like a very lovely affair. Then there's a giant kite right above them. Nobody cares. Like you say, this is Gotham City. Anything can happen. And then the smoke bombs come out of the kite. On the next page, you know, you talked in your synopsis about Robin flying along and diving into the water. That was actually a really good sequence. If you think about it, nowadays we see this kind of thing a lot. Spider-Man hanging on by his web to the vulture or Batman hanging on like he did in the animated series to Man Bat or something like that. 
But this is long before all that. This is 1960. That would have been pretty exciting and probably had a number of pages in between. And some kid would have been reading, oh, no, what's going to happen to Robin? And turned a couple pages of ads before he got to the resolution of it, which was relatively clever on Robin's part. He sees where he could jump off and dives off into the water tower. So I thought that was pretty well done. That's probably the most exciting part of the story. I do agree. I think that is the best part of this entire story. How's Robin going to get out? Obviously, Robin can't fly. That easily was my favorite part of the issue. Batman and Robin see him flying away when he picks up Big Bill Collins. And Sean, can you tell me, what is a ski kite? (laughs) A ski kite is a well-known and established real thing that when I summered off of the coast of the Cape, we would kite ski often with our catamaran, and then we would go eat caviar. (laughs) There there you go. So Robin's driving the boat and Batman's holding on to it and he jumps up there and then (laughs) Kite Man throws a kite at him and (laughs) knocks Batman out, which is bizarre. And then once again, somebody's captured a prisoner. I guess that had to be a staple of a lot of these stories. Sean, we're seeing Alfred, we're seeing Commissioner Gordon. Now Batman himself is captured and he's got to signal Robin. And of course he signals him with a bat kite. Of course. And luckily, he wore his woolen bat socks under his boots and can unravel them for the kite string. Could you unravel your sock if you were in that situation? (laughs) I would have to. I would have to. I guess he probably has like a bat knife in his utility belt. (laughs) I guess I would have to like gnaw at it with my teeth. We don't actually see the rescue, which is actually that's pretty good storytelling because then the bad guys show up and now we're going to all take pot shots at Batman. But Batman's free and Robin's there. And they, of course, they don't use their bat items. They use the kite man's own equipment against him to keep with that theme of the kites and capture them in the kite net. But kite man gets away and a little anticlimactic that we saw a bigger picture on the splash page of this dragon kite. Yes. But we do get a nice shot of uh, the trophy room with a mechanical dinosaur peeking his nose in and there's a penguin on the side. So that was kind of nice. There's a little little shot of the trophy room in the last panel. But other than that, a little anticlimactic. Right. So we obviously here at the reunion, we love Batman family. I don't presume to speak for Cousin Paul, but Of the four stories in this issue, I think we know which story is the not worst, but we'll say the less than the other three. Let's not take out any more time and let's go on to our next segment, which is the Bat Timeline. And in this segment, we're going to take a look at the other titles that DC published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing at that time, as well as some other titles, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. So, Sean, you want to start us off? Absolutely. Batman number 271 features the Corpse King COD, which that is a phenomenal title. I got to take a minute and talk about one of my favorite comics of all time, Brave and the Bold, number 124. It's got a fabulous Jim Aparo cover. Stars Batman and Sergeant Rock, and Jim Aparo actually appears on the cover. He's got a hooded man menacing him, and he says, finish the cover, Aparo. Rock kills Batman, or I kill you. And you see a sketch of the Brave and the Bold cover where Sergeant Rock is pointing a gun at Batman with an empty word balloon. This is a story where it's zany Haney at his best. It goes back and forth between the real world and the comic book world. And the writer and the artist are affecting the outcome of the story. And Jim Aparo actually gets chased. They have to finish the story in the right way or else they all die and Batman dies. And it blew my mind when I was a kid and continues to do so to this day. It definitely has a beautiful cover told this story on a Fire and Water Presents episode where we talked about the Holy Grail, but I'll say a quick version of it here. 
about four or five years ago, this cover, original cover came up for auction at Heritage Auctions. And I've been like, oh my gosh, I don't have any original art, but if I had one piece, it would be a Jim Aparo page. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the perfect one. Maybe I can scrape together a couple of thousand bucks. So, you know, I get online and I'm watching it. I figure I'll, I'll make a bid and boom, it ends up cover goes for $30,000. <laughs> Needless to say, that cover is not hanging here in my comic book room. It's some other person's house, but it's an awesome cover. Absolutely. The next book we'll talk about is Detective Comics number 455, and it's Batman in Heart of a Vampire. And that cover is very striking as well. You have Batman holding a lantern over someone who's fallen. It could be Alfred. And coming out of a coffin is Dracula. The backup story is Hawkman. And we may never, ever be able to talk about Hawkman in Batman Family Reunion <laughs> again. So I wanted I wanted to bring him in for this episode. The next one is Joker number five. This one's of note simply because it guest stars the Royal Flush Gang in a story called The Joker Goes Wild with an E on the end. Now, the next issue we're going to talk about is Justice League of America number 126. And for the first time in my life... Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Sean. Why are we talking about that For one? For the first time in my life, Cousin Paul let me down because he didn't want to talk about Justice League of America number 126 because Batman does not appear in the issue. I think he was on monitor duty, which is very important, very important. <laughs> However, Face and the Joker which are members of the Batman family, the black sheep of the family that we don't talk about. There you go. You're right. They are the villains of the issue. I am properly chagrined. Well, Good point, I only saw it in the write-up on Mike's <laughs> Amazing World, so don't give me too much credit. <laughs> and the last Batman issue of the month was World's Finest, number 235. Has a really weird but effective Ernie Chan cover. You've got Batman rushing towards Superman, but it's Superman who's being grasped by a presumably giant hand, but his head is popping off. So what's going on with this one? I'll let you look up that issue and read it yourself. But we are not done at the newsstand. Every month, we have an allowance of $5. Now, we've been grandfathered Batman family, so we don't have to pay for that issue. But we're going to go through the newsstand and give you our picks for what we would buy that month with our $5. And this is an expensive month for me, and I only have four titles. <laughs> Whoa. Luckily, the first one is All-Star Comics, which Cousin Paul talked about. It's the first issue with the Super Squad, with Earth Robin and Power Girl, Star Spangled Kid. It's a fantastic issue. I didn't have it at the time. I have since gone back and bought each individual issue and bought the collected hardcover because I love those stories. My next issue is Archie's Christmas Lovin'. I said I love Christmas stories, and Archie has great Christmas stories. The next book I have never seen in my life, but thanks to Mike's Amazing World, I can see it's called Flashback number 32, and the publisher is Dynapubs, and I am buying it. It's America's Greatest Comics, number seven, and it's Captain Marvel. I do know a little bit about these flashback Ooh. books, and I have like two or three. I don't have this one. I have two or three of them. They were reprints, some in black and white. So that might actually be in black okay. and white. And they reprinted a whole bunch of, I don't know whether they thought they were in public domain, but Timely Comics, Fawcett Comics, even some DC Comics. The one I have is World's Best Comics. Mm, mm. And then I also had one that was Dollman. So they had a bizarre set of golden age comics reprint by this company. And there were a bunch of them. And look, this was number 32. So I, I don't know exactly how many there are. So maybe our listeners and the Bat family will, somebody else knows more about. Strange thing, printed by some other company. Cool selection on your part. Now, the great news is this is 96 pages. The bad news is this is $3. So it's more, more than half of my allowance. And the last thing, which 
again, is expensive, but I don't regret at all, is Power Records PR27, and that is Batman versus the Joker. The title on the cover of the book and record set is Stacked Cards, but according to Mike Amazing World, it's called Trumping the Joker. 20 pages, book and record, penciled by Neil Adams. I had this as a kid. I loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I know Rob and Chris are big fans of the yeah. Power Records and do the occasional mm-hmm. podcast. I had a couple of them when I was a kid. I don't think many of them survived. My favorite one was the great big Spider-Man rock comic that I have actually framed in my room here. But a bunch of the other ones I, I had, but I can't remember if I had this with a good choice. All right, so mine, I'm going to rattle off a couple real quick. I had uh, Adventure Comics, number 443. Mm-hmm. It's got a beautiful Jim Apparel cover of Aquaman riding on uh, top of a dolphin and i think i could be wrong i think this was the first issue of adventure or an aquaman story i bought ever bought because i know i have a pretty ratty copy of it in my collection i still have it you've got amazing spider-man 152 with the shocker mm. you've got avengers 143 which is another Engelhart perez masterpiece and it's a, a part of that serpent crown affair i mentioned the blackhawk when we did the ad and i did buy this issue and a couple of more never really got into the Blackhawks. Have to note, Captain America number 193, that's the return of Jack Kirby to Marvel. The start of the Mad Bomb storyline with a fantastic cap yeah. cover by Kirby. Fantastic Four number 166, which is Hulk versus Thing. Always good with more George Perez art. The Justice League issue, which we, we did mention, has the Weaponers of Cord in it, which that was, I think, my introduction to that group. Marvel team-up was a must-buy for me, just like Brave and the Bold. Spider-Man and the Scarlet mm. Witch mm-hmm. that week. And then uh, I always liked the Marvel Tales, Marvel Triple Action, those reprints. Well, that's how I read all those old Marvel stories. And I believe... That is the last one on my list because you mentioned the power records. Oh, and the Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes 214. It has great Grell art and cover. And I did note, and I had to look this up, written by Jim Shooter. Got to be one of the last things he wrote for DC before he moved over to Marvel. And then I'll point out the Warlord number one came out this month as well. I didn't have it at the time, but that was also published at this in this month. Those are my selections. Very fun month. Got a lot of great stories there. All right, so let's move on to the fourth story. And I requested from Cousin Sean to do this synopsis and and read along because I love this story. I'm just telling you, as much as I love the lead story and the issue, this is my favorite story. It's called Batman of the Future. It stars Batman of the Year 3000, whose secret identity is Brain, and Robin of the Year 3000, whose secret identity is Ricky. 13 pages, written by Joseph Green with art by Dick Sprang and Jerry Robinson. Now, you'll note, and I looked this up, Sean, it has a little box in our Batman Family reprint. It says art by Dick Sprang and Jerry Robinson. Did not have that in the original. If you go back and look in the source material, which is Batman number 26 from 1944, they actually have Batman number 26 on DC Universe. I went, I looked. That little box is not there. It just says Bob Kane, as all of them did. So DC was trying at this time to give credit to the actual artists who ghosted for Bob Kane. So I, I wanted to point that out. So this is art by Dick Sprang and Jerry Robinson. So it's the year 3000. The Earth is at its peak of development. After 100 years of peace, only scientists and teachers make war on disease and ignorance. Sounds just like today, right, Sean? Anyway, invaders from Saturn under the command of the evil Fura sneak attack Earth, and easily take over the planet, enslaving the population. Earth has given up. A man named Brain watches as Earthlings helplessly march into a concentration camp. As he and his young friend Ricky make their way home, they come upon a time capsule from the 1939 New York World's Fair, unearthed in the rubble from a battle. It is filled with historical artifacts, including books and newsreels. They are inspired by the bravery and heroism of the people of the past. 
but they can't convince others to join the resistance since they all think the Saturnians are invincible. So Brain and Ricky decide to take up the mantle of great heroes they see in the newsreels, Batman and Robin. So Batman and Robin begin by fighting a small-scale guerrilla war on the aliens, blowing up factories, freeing people from concentration camps, stealing weapons. His legend begins to grow, and the people begin to rally behind their new heroes. They train under his leadership, and eventually they fight off the aliens. But the Batman of the year 3000 is not done. He argues that they have to take the fight to Saturn or the aliens will just return someday. The people are unsure, saying they're not professional fighting men. Batman whips off his cowl and tells them he's not a professional either. He adopted this identity since he knew they wouldn't follow plain old brain. Once again energized, the humans take off for Saturn where they discover that the aliens are in fact robots. That's why they were so mechanical and machine-like when obeying Fura's orders, says one of the men. The evil Fura has imprisoned the real Saturnians who are peaceful. Brain takes the fight to outer space where he tussles with Fura. The evil dictator gets his just desserts as his spacesuit is ruptured in the battle and he is exposed to the harsh environs of space. Brain returns to a hero's welcome and gives a speech worthy of Captain America. We must never again relax our vigilance for peace and freedom are far too precious ever to be left unguarded again. Finally, we learn that Brain's futuristic name is actually a shortened version of his direct ancestor, Bruce Wayne. Sean, tell me what you think of Batman of the future. This is fantastic. This is exactly what the best science fiction will do, is take something that's modern, and it's an analogy. Certainly the first time I read, and I didn't read this when it first came out, but I had it probably in the 90s. I don't know that even then I understood what it really was but now of course like it's such an analogy for world war ii like i said much as i like the background robin story up front this is my favorite story it works as a science fiction this came out in 1944 mm-hmm. so world war ii was still going on the despot of saturn was named fura the fura okay f-u-r-a the humans defeated him by their courage and their intelligence and they needed to take the fight to him at his headquarters in berlin i mean in saturn yeah to make sure that it doesn't come back kids of the time would have definitely related to this story they would have known about the time capsule from the world's fair because that was big news back then the art and it is a little primitive i mean it's 1940 and batman's been around only five years at this point this is batman number 26 but there are pretty good action shots like the punches thrown by batman and robin on the bottom of page five i didn't really mention in the write-up the love interest that brain has in here laurel is her name the purpose she serves is she's glad that she's going to marry him because he's brave and then he needs to keep his secret identity so he doesn't let on that he's batman and so he he doesn't train with the group because he's training them as batman and she wants to leave him because he's cowardly and then and this was the best part of the issue at the time we talked about secret identities and maybe this is why it's in here because this whole issue's got a lot of secret identity stuff in it and he whips off his mask which the real batman would never have done whips off his mask to say hey i'm just a guy right we can do this together and then, of course, she comes back and talks about how brave he is, and, and, and they get married at the end. Just awesome. I love how Batman leaves one of the aliens with a little bat sign tied up, you know? <laughs> I'd love that. I'm going on and on. Why don't I pause and let you talk for a minute? There are parts of the story that I just think are, but that's not true. The, the entire story is fantastic. There are parts of the story I want to talk about. The first panel of the splash page, that paragraph there, it reads like a newsreel when you read the paragraph, for it is not a story about Batman and Robin. Rather, it is a story of people, ordinary people like you and me, people who like our government and that gives us life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and are willing to fight for it. That is newsreel copy. I, I love 
hearing that. We are familiar with newsreels because when we see a movie taking place in the 40s, we watch the people in the audience seeing a newsreel. But we've, I would gather, most of us have never really watched a newsreel from beginning to end. They're very interesting. You have to remember like the nightly news that we're familiar with, they didn't have that. They had news on the radio, but they didn't have picture news. They went to the Mm -hmm. movies to see that. So it really was their news broadcast. So yeah, we see it, we see excerpts of it when we see people in the 40s go to the movies. Look up YouTube, look up a specific newsreel and they're very very interesting to watch another part that's really interesting they figure out that the robots are blindly following fura but then the real saturnians are actually peaceful people that's pretty progressive thinking for being in the middle of the war right don't don't have to hate all of the germans the japanese or whatever they're taken in by their their leaders very progressive page 13 there's this battle in space pretty gruesome death for fura this is before the comics code well before it and batman Brain doesn't shoot him, but they're tussling in space and Fura's suit rips and they have to explain to the kids that, oh, he's dying because he can't be exposed to space, which is factually correct, unlike a lot of stories at this time. Yeah, yeah. His speech is great. The fact that his name is Bruce Wayne, while today a little on the predictable side, is also great. Just well done. Good science fiction. As you said, this is real science fiction, placing the issues of the day in a place of the future with fantastic characters. It's funny when people today complain about comic books being woke or about the times. It has always been that. Captain America number one, he is punching Hitler a year before we entered the war. This is published during the These are political comics. They are taking the stance for freedom and, and the, the real values of freedom, real freedom. It's fantastic. Sean, this was such a well-written story. I've probably been wondering where my little history lesson was going to come in. So I had to look up Joseph Green, the guy who wrote this story, per Mike's. He has 90 story credits for DC from 1942 to 1948. He wrote a few Batman stories. He also wrote Our Man, Mr. America, The Atom, The Shining Knight, The Ghost Patrol, a couple of Green Lanterns, a Dr. Midnight, and one Superman story. Per the Grand Comic Book Database, he also had a number of stories written uh, about the Green Llama as well. He sometimes used a pen name, Alvin Schwartz, and it's kind of hard to find all his comics because he's uncredited on a lot of them. But His most well-known creation is Tom Corbett Space Cadet, okay? He started out as Tom Ranger and the Space Cadets, and he originally was created to be a radio show. There were various versions he tried to sell as early, apparently, as 1946. Actually, Tom Corbett made it to TV first, 1950 to 55, and a little TV tidbit for you, Sean, aired on all four networks at the time, which only a handful of shows from the early days of TV could do. Had a bunch of other media, books, radio shows, comic strips, handful of toys, including three Viewmaster reels, and even music. In 1951, there was a Tom Corbett cadet sing-along in March performed by the Space Cadet Marching Band, which I think was funny. Joseph's main job was an editor for Grosset and Dublin Publishing, and it doesn't seem like he wrote very many of these Tom Corbett stories afterwards, and if so, they were uncredited. He seemed to do a lot of the ghostwriting. But what I thought was interesting is you can really see how his Batman of 3000, 1944, idea related to his Tom Corbett. And he was clearly interested in the sci-fi, the rockets, the aliens. All that became very, very prevalent in the 1950s in comic books, but also in popular culture. Anyway, great story. Joseph Green, very interesting character. Thought I'd share that a little bit. I'm actually surprised, really, this is the only instance or case 
where I've seen Batman of the Year 3000. I'm just surprised in this day and age that more isn't made of it. You would think that it'd be reprinted in a bunch of places. Obviously, it's in the archives. I'm going to check real quick where else it might be reprinted. If our readers want to read this story, you can see it. DC Universe, of course. I reprinted from Batman 26. Let me see if I can find where it's been. It's been reprinted in Batman Family number three, Batman the Dark Knight Archives number seven, and Batman the Golden Age Omnibus number four. That's it. No digest, no treasury, no nothing. So I don't know whether they figured it was sort of too old fashioned of a uh, story or the art. I mean, I thought the art was pretty good. There's a couple of good action sequence, a couple of good punches. The arts, but the arts crude, right? I mean, they, they had a lot of opinions about that kind of stuff in the 70s and 80s about what modern audiences would like or wouldn't like. And now we're looking back at it a little more historical perspective. We can appreciate it, but maybe that was it. Maybe that's part of it. But I agree with you. It's a great story. So I encourage everybody to go read it. I'm surprised it's never made its way into a best of Batman. Yeah, it's a great story. Hey, Sean, one thing I want to mention before we end is most of our listeners know running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more and more costly over the years. So more shows were added. So if you're enjoying what you hear on this show or any of the other shows, please consider becoming a patron. We can't all live in Wayne Manor, but any small amount you can give can help defray the cost. So to find out how to help, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. And thanks for anything you can do. Well, Sean, have we finished episode three of our reunion? Are you full yet from your fried chicken? Oh, I don't want it to be so, but unfortunately, we are out of stories. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for coming to our reunion, but we're not done yet. We're going to play a couple of podcast promos, and when we return, we will read your listener feedback. Welcome, one and all, to the Fire and Water Racetrack and Arena. Please direct your attention to the center of the track where you will see 36 buses lined up between two ramps, a tank full of live man-eating sharks and a high wire stretching over it all. The rocket cycle is warmed up and all the nets have been removed. Who would attempt these stunts just to entertain and inspire his audience? What kind of man? What kind of hero? There, coming in on a rocket-powered skateboard, it's the death-defying human flycast! Join me, Max Romero, and a rotating roster of guests as we dive headfirst into the colorful comics of Marvel's The Human Fly. The Death-Defying Human Fly cast is a limited episode podcast spotlighting the adventures of a man who comes back from a crippling auto accident to become a mysteriously masked stuntman with a mission to inspire others to never give up hope. We'll also talk about the real-life Human Fly, a daredevil with a murky past and a desire to be the best stuntman in history until the day he just disappeared. The actual human fly would vanish as suddenly as he had materialized, but not before sparking a comic series featuring what would be the wildest superhero ever. Because he was real! The Death-Defying Human Flycast, coming soon to the Fire & Water Podcast Network. It's gonna be wild. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. 
DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Welcome back. We are going to read and respond to your listener feedback now. As a reminder, in order to comment, please go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and find the relevant episode of Batman Family Reunion. In addition, remember, you can always email us at batmanfamilyreunion at gmail.com. Remember, this is a reunion, so if there is an upcoming episode you would like to join us to talk about, or even just a particular story, email us and we will slot you in. We are happy to report we have already filled a few spots. And something really interesting about the emails we got to the Gmail, the number of emails is exactly the same amount of appearances by Aunt Harriet that we appreciate and enjoy, which is zero. But that's okay. <laughs> we didn't get any messages through Gmail, but we did get a lot of response on Facebook, Twitter, and on the Fire and Water comments page. All right. So first up, we've got Network All-Star Rob Kelly, who's the host of Fade Out, MASHCAST, many others. He says, great second show, boys. Can you imagine any Batman story in the last 20 years hinging on Batman merely slipping? Batman doesn't make mistakes. Uh, Regarding that shot of Batgirl and Robin appearing on merch, it doesn't look like it did to me, but I defer to our merch expert of the network, Chris Franklin. And then the Super Friends Dick Tracy Treasury ad, probably the best one-two punch of all of DC's treasuries. This second show had a lot of Martin Gray content. Will this be a regular feature? Sean, you want to take that one? The Martin Gray comment will vary with how much I love and or hate his comments. Glory to Gray. That's my <laughs> version of praised be his name when we talk about the <laughs> Luis Garcia Lopez. Glory to Gray. We continue on with our buddy Chris Franklin who begins his comment about Batgirl's motorcycle lights. Another great episode, fellas. The rainbow lights are indeed a bit of a stretch. Gardner wasn't above giving heroes goofy gadgets in this period. I seem to recall him giving Sandman some dubious equipment in the JLA-JSA team-up in JLA 46 and 47. He was clearly embracing the camp era. I don't think that image of Batgirl and Robin in the Batgirl cycle was ever used on merchandise that I know of. The cover image of Batgirl from her debut in Detective 359 was reused over and over. And even some interior panels were too, also by Infantino and Anderson slash Green. So maybe that's what you're thinking of. I see, and then Chris goes on. I seem to recall Mystery Man had a blink and you'll miss it cameo in Kingdom Come, duking it out with the equally mysterious Power Man who replaced Batman and Robin as Superman's crime-fighting partners in World's Finest number 94. Oh, and Men in Action is a toy line I only knew from that same comic ad. My pal Brian Heiler has posted about them a few times on Plaid Stallions. I think they were some of the earliest action figures to have some kind of special action feature, though. So at least they indirectly inspired superpowers. Yeah, you were right about that, Sean. So uh, next up, we've got our future guest, Captain Entropy. Bat Cousins, he says, I can't wait till I finish listening to comment. I'll forget things. First, <laughs> I'm pretty sure everything's bad motorcycles rainbow light show does could be accomplished today by LIDAR, light imaging detection and ranging, if she had an unobstructed line of sight to the target. The Wikipedia entry on LIDAR explains it pretty well, but the most impressive part is the application sections. 
Of course, Batgirl's tech is 50 years ahead of its time and would be impossibly small even today, but that's comics. Well, thanks for bringing the, the tech knowledge, Captain Entropy. Also, thanks very much for covering the ads. They were entertaining in their own right, and now they're a slice of history. That's what we think, too, so glad to, glad to do that. He votes for the mighty and the merciful or the strong and the selfless as alternate titles for DC Comics mm-hmm. Presents. I like both of that. Yeah, I love thank them. You. Yeah, thank you for everything you included in the gallery, but especially the Moldoff content. Um, thanks, for, I'm glad you, glad you liked that. It's pretty neat to see that little business card, which is kind of cool. Uh, in the background Robin image, Batgirl looks perfectly on model, but Robin's still getting into the sidecar. That's why I think at least his half of the image wouldn't be used in merchandise. That's a good point. I kind of viewed it as he was kind of sitting on the edge, but maybe he was jumping in or jumping off, but that could be a good reason. And then he says, please do not apologize or restrain yourself when it comes to sharing comments and creator history with us. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Captain Entropy. We like that. And I hope you enjoyed this, this episode's uh, Bat History segment as well. Thanks, Captain. And we'll hear from you down the line. Network all-star Siskoid of Who's Editing? Zero Hour Strikes, and many other shows chimes in. Non-super Batman or not, swinging a guy by the neck is hardcore. Another great show, guys. Hear you next month. <laughs> as succinct as usual. So next up, we have Sean's arch nemesis, but also best friend, Martin Gray, who chimes in. Thanks for a very another very listenable show. That's a great cover. I just love the white box an elegant solution to the problem of representing several stories. And yes, the floating faces are fab. This this makes me feel good that someone likes the cover boxes because I kind of hate them. But it does make me feel good because like when I look at it and say, oh, I hate that cover box, I can think, well, at least Martin liked it. There you go. And he goes on to say that this was a decent issue with the Clue Master story being the highlight. I do like his masked look, but the rest of the costume is just vile. <laughs> And there could be, and could there be a more perfect villain of the issue, given that he actually wound up fathering a member of the Batman family? Good point. Poor old Aunt Harriet, though. I believe she wound up in Arkham Asylum due to years of gaslighting. (laughs) I wouldn't say that Vicki Vale, assuming Mystery Man is Superman, is a leap of logic. They did team up eight times a year or something in World's Finest, and I'm pretty sure she was in the odd story. I'm wondering if Mystery Man being Commissioner Gordon inspired that odd Scott Snyder story arc with Gordon running around in Gotham in a metal bat bunny suit. Um, No comment. Thank you so much for the Sheldon Moloff information. It was fascinating. Who knew he created Hot Girl's outfit? I found that pretty interesting too, Martin. Uh, I do find it unbelievable nobody at DC realized that that wasn't actually Bob Kane drawing all those pages. Surely they were just turning a blind eye. I think they knew what he was up to exactly who he was yep. employing. They might not have known. But I got to believe that they, they knew he wasn't drawing all that uh, those pages. Uh, he further goes on. He says, I know Carmine Infantino's later work isn't all that popular, but late Bronze Age DC and Marvel paired him with scrappier inkers than the smooth operators he got in the 60s. For me, he remained brilliant. Just ignore the weird pointy boobs he'd give Spider-Woman. Yeah, it's really weird. I am a gold star gay. So like anytime I notice women's breasts in <laughs> real life or in public, they have or in comics, they have to be like up and out and on display and like, you know, like with a neon sign. And me noticing Spider-Woman's boobs in her book. Yeah, that definitely was odd <laughs> pointy they were they were they were madonna-esque i do recall that uh so then he asks the question i'm curious your thoughts sean how do people feel about reframing of the reference with updated logos and the like 
I'm not keen on it. I'd rather see the stories as originally presented. If a Batman story is being repurposed as an Alfred tale, don't knacker the splash page. Just have Batman introducing it outside the regular image area, as would happen in the 100-page Super Spectaculars. Mine, the Clue Master makeover was pretty decent. I, mean, I like the idea, but that would probably be more work, right? And I, I'm of two minds about it. Yeah, like I really would like to have the original presentation. I definitely think we are looking at that through the 2000s eyes that we have. Because back then, getting any kind of comic reprint that many years later, that was a gift. Mm-hmm. So however they wanted to present it, I was fine with it. Yeah. And as a kid, it did help me having like the little border at the top that I realized maybe three or four issues after that. Oh, that's a reprint issue. That's an older story. Yeah. So then his most controversial comment, he says, could we have a listener poll on the question of Twinkies? I noticed only one host spoke up for them. Sean, your response? If everybody wants to write in, if they like Twinkies or Hostess Cupcakes better, if you like Hostess Fruit Pies, I really need to hear from (laughs) you because I think we may have to have an intervention or some kind of relief for you. The other thing too is, in a way, I super like it when people write in and say they don't like Twinkies because then that's more Twinkies for me. Like if, <laughs> like if they get Twinkies in their Easter basket, then they're going to hand the Twinkies over to me. So all of you Twinkie haters, please, please, please write in. And if for whatever reason you get Twinkies, give them to me. There you go. As for upcoming new, the upcoming new logos, they're marginally less awful, but still pretty rubbish. Oh, I think they're rubbisher than rubbish. I think all of these early logos are pretty much horrific and pointy and ugly and gross. And I know somewhere down the line, we're getting good ones. I think issues, I'm horrible with issue numbers. I think seven, maybe seven or eight is when we get the new logos, which I love. And you will hear me rant on about those when we get to them. All right, we'll see if Martin agrees. And finally, look again at the Alfred story, page seven, panel three. I challenge you to unsee Robin's sex doll legs. I'm wondering, is this like a British thing? Because, <laughs> hey, I, I am all for, you know, like seeing things that aren't there, for imagining things between people and all that. Like, I'm down for it. But I looked at the panel and I don't, I don't really get it. I'm definitely not shaming anybody for what they see or enjoy or anything like that. I just don't see. I would like to partake. I just, I just don't get it. <laughs> All right, let's move it on. At this point, Cap- Captain Entropy dropped by again. He says, first vote, not a Twinkie fan. I'm hoping this doesn't cause Sean to cancel my planned appearance. <laughs> I have greater appreciation for other chocolate-based hostess products. For example, I have a friend who, after months in a remote village in Africa, got caught stealing a more fortunate colleague's ho-hos, and I wouldn't say she was right, merely that her crime was understandable. <laughs> I'm not entirely against Twinkies, I did once work in a vault built during this Cold War. It had a capture space, think airlock, but for a different purpose. We determined that it was possible for someone to become trapped overnight or worse for the weekend. I suggested throwing in some water jugs and Twinkies in the corner out of respect for their shelf life. That could have saved like uh, the Brazilian miners, like anyone (laughs) who's stuck or trapped. Like there should always be an emergency ration of Twinkies present in in every building. It's like kind of like right beside like the fire extinguisher and the AED. There's like a little shelf behind glass and has some Twinkies inside. Break here in case of hunger emergency. (laughs) Changing gears, Matsuroi says, the first time I saw Batman, the Batman 1961 family picture was in The Killing Joke. Batman had it in a frame on his desk in the Batcave. 
I was intrigued. I was intrigued by the Batwoman and Bathound. I hadn't known they existed until then. I haven't read that in years, so I hadn't noted. I mean, I hadn't remembered that at all. So. It is interesting how uh, like everyone's first exposure to characters is going to be different. Like, you know, some of them's the Batman TV show, mm-hmm. uh, the 66, some of it's Super Friends, some of it's Batman Family. Yeah, when I started reading Batman Family, I had no idea there was a Batwoman. I knew Batgirl. I had no idea it was Batwoman. So when she showed up, I was like, yeah, fantastic. We go back and the Twinkie debate roils on with Siskoid jumping in now. He says, I want to support Martin Gray in his opinion of Twinkies. You Americans load your food with so much sugar it can seem inedible in other countries. Here in Canada, even the exact same brand of candy bar, cereal, etc. will have less sugar and taste different. In the UK, their sweet is a kind of bitter to the North American palate. <laughs> and now back to non-Twinkie feedback. Doug Van Diver, the sea serpent, says... Last time, young Mr. Grayson and young Ms. Gordon faced off against the Dark Lord, Satan Lee, and triumphed. This time, swamp fever? Note to self, we now know that Batman is part horse, as this is a disease of equines and doesn't infect humans. Well, I guess we can't always have issue-to-issue escalation of threats. As for, mystery, as for the Mystery Man installment, for sure, Bruce trusted Alfred, That wasn't why he was asked to keep out of the cave during the Mystery Man's visit. It was just that Alfred was so well-known as the Wayne Manor Majordomo, so seeing him would have been enough for Mystery Man to immediately discern Batman's identity. Actually, our our trusty butler could have headed down to the cave in disguise if he wanted to troll Mystery Man. My mind is conjuring up a Guy Fawkes mask, cape, and a big A on his shirt, and the alias anonymous man like it Uh, but this is too early on in the version of alfred that is made of sarcasm i forgot more's the pity that is a great comment doug i love it doug goes on to say hey this podcast's a lot of fun and i'm adding it to my must listen queue you. you guys are doing a great job oh and thanks for the assortment of helpful hints on how (laughs) on telling the two of you apart i attentively listened and failed to retain a word of it though Cheers till next issue. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Doug. Now I'm going to read off all of the names of the people who have interacted us, interacted with us on Twitter and Facebook. And always remember, if I mispronounce your name, it means I think you're someone awful special. If I forget your name entirely, it means I think even more of you than that. On Facebook, we had replies, messages, comments, forwards, and all of those things from Clinton Robinson, Brian Linton, Brian Green, Jay Campbell, Herschel Mimas, Chris Lydon, Terry O'Malley, Max Romero, Waiting for Doom, Keith G. Baker, Mike Thomas, and Roger Preeb. And on the Twitter side of things, we heard from Earth to Chris, Liz Ann Oswald, KR Dragon underscore two, Michael Thomas, Fan Film Fridays podcast, Firestorm, Firestorm fan and irredeemable shag. Hmm. Captain Freakout's Psychedelic Radio, Mike Deans, Tim Price, the podcaster, This Lightsaber Kills Fascists, and Martin Gray. Pray, glory to Gray. Glory to Gray. Thanks to all of you who wrote in with comments. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Tune in again the first week in April, and you will hear us talk about a special Christmas issue with not one, but two all-new stories, plus Elongated Man and Fat Man, and a special podcast guest star. 
We'll see you next month. See you next month.